Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 271 The Black Box Flower Patch was considered by almost everyone to be, well, a weirdo. Since even in Crash she was preferred to inhabit a nanite body once they were introduced to what most DSs thought was just an ease of interaction tool. Her body was custom coded with custom nanite she ordered and had designed. She had even seen a digital surgeon to have the nanite coding woven into a base core string. Green Flower Patch could touch her creation engine or nanoforge and have it print out the nanites, even her custom ones, so she could build her own body. The only time that she didn't inhabit a nanite body was when she was forced to retreat into survival core to be moved through hyperspace or secure area. She knew other people thought that she was strange, thought that she was weird, thought that there was no real reason for her preference other than to be different. They were wrong. Flowerpatch had fallen in love with matter reality during her first interaction with it. The majority of the time that she ran the program of her own devising, it allowed her to define what speed she experienced reality, from below human perception to the slightly painful faster than even the other digital sentience. Most of the time, she ran it at the high end of the human normal, just brushing the outlier case. She also adjusted her brain power, limiting the amount of code that she could run at any given time using fuzzy logic search strings to make it more difficult for her to access her own deep storage memory. The other digital sentiences call her crazy, but let her live in a world where matter and energy met. Which is why she was skipping down the hallway, going to find Victor, or Legion, or Durov, or whatever he was calling himself. She was materials engineer specialist who worked with engineering from strange matter to protomatter to lovely, wonderful, so solid iron particles. To be honest, most digital sentiences lived in a world of strange matter and protomatter, in the ebb and flow of electronic communication and energy fluxes, but she preferred a world of base periodic table. Flowerpatch pressed a hand against the pad on the outside of Victor's lab and waited to be admitted. What? Oops, that wasn't Victor's voice. Flowerpatch could tell that Drov was the one who had answered the request. It's Flowerpatch. Can I come in? I have a question, she said. Ask your question. I'm involved in research, Drov said. I'm in an argument. I want to ask about your Agent Smith's digital avatar, but... She started. The door slid open. Get in here! She felt a little nervous walking in. Drub Legion Victor was talking to Strand Nexus 333874, who was the resident mental engram image specialist. I think it drops a quarter to a half of the data it brings in before it applies to the template, Nexus said. In might, the data might be time-space coordinates and biological data. It might not drop it. It might send it to a different system, Drub said. 
He leaned back in his chair and stroked his beard for a moment before making a motion and tossing the glowing, flowing cube of swirling data up. Okay, here's a mental engram taken from a suds roughly 8,000 years ago. He made another motion. Here's a modern one. Slight bit difference, but nothing major. Nexus said, Can we see yours? Flowerbatch asked. Drub looked at her. Is it relevant? I think so, Flowerbatch said. Drub sighed and tossed it up. It was much more dense. Instead of blurred edges and softly bulging and retracting sides, it was covered in spikes and tendrils that reached out and retracted. Nexus whistled. That's, uh, unique. I'm an immortal, Drub said simply, shrugging. Somewhere in there is the effects of the touch of the digital Omni-Messiah and my original brain scan. It's not in the network. You're broadcasting the image from your data link, Rabatch said, squinting. Why? Drub sighed. Because my dendrites and neural pathways have black ICE impressions. Real killer nasty stuff from the age of paranoia. If you load my brain into a system like an old interrogation room's trailed off. It'll tear it apart, Nexus said, leaning forward. Man, that is some angry dendrite chains. The Agent Smith abilities of your avatar, Flowerpatch said, walking around it and looking at it. She noted that the cube representation looked angrier on the area facing her and Nexus. It doesn't like us. It once left alone, Truff said, waving a hand. The image vanished. Nexus turned back to Drub. So one thing I've noticed in this section, he touched his mental file, highlighting a major section. It's pretty much the same in every engram, but we've never been able to figure out what it is, and the software won't let you upload the suds without it. Every manual just says, don't do it, without explanation. Druff sighed. If I tell you, you'll accuse me of being a religious hysteric. Nexus frowned, and Flowerpatch laughed. Druff turned to Flowerpatch. Something funny. No, I'm in the room with one of the immortals, background Luke, if I'm correct. A man who walked beside the digital Omni Messiah, who fought the heresy of two. And you think simply giving us information would make you out to be a religious heretic? She snickered again. Drub shrugged. All right, that section turned out to be really weird. I mean, we're talking weird for back then. And back then, the watchword of the day for scientific research was weird science, he said. We, humanity, did experiments. Terrible experiments. Like the ones you're doing now, Nexus asked. Rub just nodded. Yes. Oh, what terrible experiments? Flowerpatch asked. <clears throat> anyway, we tried editing that section out of the uploading it to a clone, Drub said. Hell, in my hubris, I tried during it to the genomic war. Isn't it called the eugenics war? Nexus asked. Two separate wars by about 200 years, Drub said, sighing. Stupid temporal warfare safety protocols. What? Arpatch asked. Nothing, just bitching. Anyway, you delete that part, what everyone says is some kind of junk code, upload it into a clone, and terrible crap happens. Drub said. Define terrible crap, Nexus said. Do they melt or something? Drub made a motion and a hologram appeared. A human male, rough, purple skin, bone spurs jutting out from fresh, oversized mouth of jagged teeth, long fingers with claws. No, they turn to that and go homicidal, Drub said. 
he shook his head. But if you put that into the manual, every half-baked gene cracker thinks that they can overcome it. Rob patched head. That's, uh, weird. Weird science, Rob said. Rob waved away the holocaust and replaced it with another block of swirling electrical activity, highlighting a section. That's another don't touch section. It was added after the great glassing to suppress psychic abilities in humans. Really? I've never seen it described, Nexus said. He leaned forward. Beautiful coding. Smooth. Elegant. If we do, some idiot removes it and then the person becomes engaged within a few days of the first psychic ability manifestation, Drub said. How do your brain still work? Nexus asked, leaning forward again to look at the code. My god, I can see dozens of what look like software patches applied directly to every Sud's template. Biological stubbornness, Power Patch giggled, knowing that it would annoy Nexus. Terran descent humanity is, uh, from basic protein building blocks to mental engrams to waste products, is one big don't freaking touch me from the ground up. Help, even the various parts of their own bodies don't like each other, Drop said. That's why, even with all of our technology, immunocascade disease still occurs. Tissue rejected of clone parts still appears, and cancer still pops back up even with genetic modifications to the genome. The universe's answer to everything, Nexus mused. He shrugged. I don't believe in any mysticism. I prefer science. Drub laughed. As do I. That made Flowerpatch giggle. He said, his eyes having seen the digital Omni-Messiah himself. Did you have something to ask, Flowerpatch, or are you here just to annoy us? Nexus asked. Either is fine, Drub chuckled. Sam gave me a blown-out piece of circuitry, something called a uh, video card, and as I'm a material science engineer, I wanted to ask you something, Flowerpatch said. I thought you wanted to talk to me about the fact that I can clone myself into the digital space too, Drop said, stroking his beard. Not really. I wanted your attention for this part, she said. All right, what? Drop asked. Sam thinks you just had ultra-specific versions run off by a creation engine, Flowerpatch said. She snapped her fingers and made a mow of disappointment when nothing came up. Anyway, I examined it closely at his wrong. He is... Nexus frowned. Oh yes, Flowerpatch said. She giggled out of nervous stress. It's an actual piece of pre-glassing hardware that still functions, as if it was manufactured yesterday. I want to know where he got it. Because if I'm using temporal science, then why don't I simply ask the engineers who built the system? Drub asked. Yes, Flowerpatch nodded. Because it was just in storage. Deep storage, true, but still storage, Drub said. Stasis field? Flowerpatch asked. Yes, Drow said, nodding. Flowerpatch pouted for a second. I was hoping that you had temporal access. Drow shook his head. No, temporal access fails when it comes to terror. Yeah, weird that, Nexus said. He looked at Flowerpatch. Temporal access gets more, uh, disturbed the closer you get to terror. Flowerpatch hummed. The fabled Terrasol defense system put in place by the Vodka Tsar and the other Terran rulers of the time. Drub laughed. Yeah, that's what caused it. The Vodka Tsar and the Hamburger Kingdom putting a clone of the E-Tube Fairy in order, but that's what did it. Is that true? Flowerpatch asked. 
Trump nodded. Actually, the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a vampire hunter, which is something everyone knows is what prevents temporal mechanics from working on Earth to an extent. I fail to see how an ancient Hamburger Kingdom leader and vampires stop temporal systems, Nexus said. So does everyone else, Trump grinned. I'm going to go back to work, Nexus said. He nodded, got up, and walked to the pad. He touched it and dissolved. Drud waited for a moment, then looked at Flowerpatch. Do you have work to do? Flowerpatch nodded. Yes, I wanted to ask you something. Drud smiled. You always seem to have more questions than the others. They interact with mass reality. I live in it, Flowerpatch said. Drud nodded. That makes sense. Go ahead, ask. First, an aside, Flowerpatch said. All right, Rubs looked a bit worried. Material science is an exciting discipline, a difficult one, and it was not my first choice. My first choice and my first profession for my first 30 years of existence was, she started, clinical psychologist. Drauf nodded. I know. I know everything. You are under a great deal of stress. I wish to know why, Flowerpatch said. Drub sighed. Because I know where I need to start with the friend plague. What experiments must be done to begin my research? But you don't want to do it, Alpatch said. Rub, shook his head. No. Why not? Restoring the canines and felines would be worth almost anything, Alpatch said, feeling a stir of excitement. Because to identify the problem, not the virus, that's been identified, but the actual problem... I'll have to kill dozens, maybe hundreds, of mankind's first and closest friends. End of chapter. Chapter 272. Historical Archive. The Zark Breaks a Video. The three videos hit infinite like atomic bombs. They were each viewed in the billions of times in the first 72 hours, then watched and we watched over and over. Each video spawned hundreds, thousands of imitators seeking to prove or disprove the videos, all of them doing nothing more than proving they existed. On all eight planets, the videos were played even on the public access tribe channels. Even children watched them. The first two were very much alike. Smoking for the survival-oriented male was the first one. It showed a Trianidad warrior cast with a nifty-looking hat putting a white tube with a brown end in his mouth and lighting the opposite end, with the warnings to always ensure the brown end was held in the mandibles, how to get a good drag out of it, and how to force the smoke out of the spiracles in his legs. The video showed how to stop arguments by lighting a cigarette, how to defuse tension, how to even approach a matron or matron and ask them directions to the nearest public entertainment facility. The viewers were amazed at how confident the male was. Some attempted to attribute it to his marvelous hat. After all, it made him look dangerous and confident and rugged. Still others were concerned that without the hat, the smoke wouldn't work. The Mumu Kara Hat Corporation went from little more than an infernet store to being worth trillions in the space of a week as they were swamped with orders. Every male wanted one, from the lowest street sweeper to the semi-captive breeding male of a powerful high matron, who hoped that the hat would help him escape his eventual fate. The second video, titled Power Smoker for the Elegant Matron, featured an obviously wealthy and powerful matron, resplendent in jewelry and animal leather vest, 
a decorated sash, and her antenna adorned with star-shaped charms. Using the device to inhale sharply, then exhale huge clouds of smoke from the spiracles, she showed that she could stop arguments, prevent recently matured, mostly molted females from overwhelming a male with pheromones, ease discomfort of those who had fought the Terrans and survived, and even calm the highly aggressive hatchlings. The video was watched over and over. The Designer Power Smoker Corporation and the Senso Taste Smoke Juice Corporation were flooded with orders to the point where powerful high matrons petitioned for their local hive queens to move them up on the order list. Since both corporations were militantly first come, first serve when it came to filling orders. The Hive Queens all sipped at their ornate sparkly power smokers, listened to the complaints of the High Matrons, and universally, as agreed during the meetings, used Sour Apple Surprise to signal their displeasure and ordered the High Matrons to return to the lavish estates and be grateful that the world was changing. Which startled the High Matrons, as they knew that either they would have their request granted or be eaten by the Hive Queen's grubs. The Hive Queens of all eight worlds knew that the next one would change Trinidad's destiny even more than the accidentally discovery of Jump Space and Jump Space Superluminal Flight. They had argued, worried, considered, and debated the release of the third video. But they agreed, like the uh, totally on purpose and not at all accidental invention of the Jump Drive had, that to try and stand in the way of destiny of the Trinidad was a good way to get run over and left like a flying insect on the ground car's windscreen. So, the video hit infinite, and promptly crashed the server. The beginning of the video was uh, controversial, to say the least. Four dismalted young adult females were arguing in a room, each having taken up a corner, chittering angrily at one another, sharpening blade arms, hurling insults, their wings and carapaces flushed with blood and shining brightly. A matron entered with a power smoker and exhaled a huge cloud of smoke that filled the room and rolled over the young females. They calmed, no longer throwing insults, but the anger was still almost palpable even over the video. The matron produced four balls, handing one to each of the females. Each ball contained two small, roundish orbs of something creamy looking that glittered with frost. The females ate the orbs and seemed to get drowsy quickly moving to embrace one another and reaffirm their familial bonds and friendship. Everyone who saw the video knew what they had seen was impossible. The four females should have engaged in an orgy of slaughter until only one was left, and statistically there was a high chance that all four would have died. The next bar started out confusing. A matron entered the room of the worker class, who had one of the neater hats and Worker was carrying a bowl of ice cream in one hand and a bag of stuff in the other. As the viewers watched the Worker, under the supervision of an obviously wealthy and powerful matron, brought out two metal cans with plast lids. The two cans were empty, which the Worker showed off. First, the Worker put the ice in the bottom of the larger can, mixed the ingredients in the smaller, something called mumu juice, and other esoteric ingredients. Not many really, just four that were listed as important. The kalikakak fruit that was chopped into small chunks was listed as optional, as was the crushed ikavak nuts. Once the ingredients were in the smaller can, the worker put a lid on it. 
Then the worker put the ice in the bottom of the bag, metal can, sprinkling sea salt on it, then placed a small can on top of the ice, then four layers of ice each time the salt was poured in, then covered the small can and put the lid on it. Then the worker wrapped the large can in a cloth. Then there was a cutaway scene where the worker used his blade arms to roll the can back and forth for a long time. The video advised the male to have a smoke during this time. When the worker was done, he opened the large can, removed the smaller, and made sure that the camera had a good view of him opening the small can. A wondrous substance was revealed. A thick semi-solid that was extremely cold but still soft. He pulled out a bowl, scooped out two small orbs with a bejeweled scooper. Available in limited quantities for only 350 credits by now. And handed the bowl to the matron. He then repeated it for three other bowls and it became obvious to the viewer that this was the substance given to the recently matured females. Trianidad's rushed to the nearest store, only to find huge lines waiting. The stalls were prepared and had hired matrons to walk the lines with power smokers, exhaling sweet smoke, to keep the Trianidad in lines calm. It was limited to two bags of ingredients per person. But the stall sold out in hours. The hired queens had foreseen this, however, and had hovered trucks waiting to restock the stalls while matrons dressed in hive security armor wanted the lines with power smokers to keep everyone calm. If the first three videos were atomic bombs, the fourth was a planet cracker. Reserved for mature audiences only, it showed a matron mating with a warrior-class male. Every matron who viewed it nodded along, a powerful and obviously fit mate. He would sire excellent grubs, and his head would undoubtedly be delicious, causing the matron to release powerful hormones that would ensure healthy and strong grubs. The male had seen videos like this before. They knew how it ended. Instead, she ate a scoop of ice cream, then took a deep drag of a power smoker, and then mated. While mattened, she used her blade arms to slice curls of ice cream from the second orb, when the mating was done, she rapidly ate the third, took a hit from the power smoker, and ordered the meal from her presence. It ended with, ice creams and smokes save lives. Me had escaped. The males cheered for the escape of the doomed male. The females rewound the video and watched it again. The Trianidad numbered in the highs tens of billions across the eight planets. There were thousands, tens of thousands who needed to breed. Nearly 15% of them tried the method of the video, almost a third of those recording what occurred. To the shock of everyone, the male survived, escaping while the matron relaxed, puffing on her power smoke and nibbling on the residual taste on the tips of her blade arms. Traditionalists wanted the video's bans, citing irreversible damage to society and the way things had always been there. The male resistance fractured as one half wanted the videos banned, knowing their political power would slip from their graspers. The other half seeing the videos as proof that no longer would males be destined to die, just so that the Trianidad people could continue. The Hive Queens of the Eight Planets, 49 in all, eight of whom, one on each world, had bred with the war hero who had survived what would have been a fatal meeting, demanded the video stayed up. And what the Hive Queens wanted, the Trianidad people acquiesced to. 
Those four videos hit the Trianidad species like a runaway train into a boomoo. The Hive Queens demanded boomoo raids into Terran space. If the Terrans would not share the boomers, then the Hive Queens would take the boomers. The matron who had financed and approved the daring nighttime raid that had wrested the secrets of ice cream and smoke and even snatched Moomoos, who had been promoted to high matron, had a different suggestion. She proposed a daring plot. She would take a ship into Darren's space with the war hero to accompany her along with a faithful and dauntless combat team and demand that the Terrans send a diplomat to speak with her. She would demand that the Terrans turn over two Red Star systems to the Trianidad people, open trade relations with the Trianidad people, and in the Trianidad people's benevolence, they'd return the worthless, rainy plant-covered planets around those dangerous yellow stars. Live queens discussed the plan. It was insane. Possible. Then the newly crowned High Matron reminded them that the concept of birth control had also seemed impossible. But it had taken Trianidad scientists less than a month to create a synthetic hormone to prevent breeding hysteria. The queens ate ice cream, puffed on their power smokers, and consulted one another. If it didn't work, then all the Trianidad people lost was one ship. A newly promoted high matron and a war hero who had already bred an outlandish and impossible ten times. They made the decision. Peace or bust was commissioned and went into jump space, heading for the Terran Trianidad dispute zone. Admiral Tashuma rushed to the bridge of the flagship of the Enterprise, still buttoning his tunic with red lights flashing and a claxton waiting. What have we got? He asked, rubbing his face. His jaw ached from no sleep inhaler, and he puffed on the elevator. Trianidad ship, just one, looks unarmed. It jumped into the resonance zone and started broadcasting. Lieutenant J.G. Duong said, They are sitting right next to the hypercom buoy and are waiting to talk. That was new. Trianidad usually showed up with hive ships, dropping tens of thousands of warriors onto a planet and spawning thousands of torture fighters. Just one ship asking to talk was something that had never happened since the Trinidad had attacked out of the blue. All right, as our hypercom link warmed up, Tashima asked. The lieutenant nodded and the bridge crew tensed. Open the link, Tashima ordered. The screen cleared of the Republic's wallpaper. The image of the Trinidad appeared. Tashima coughed, avoiding bursting out laughing. There was a huge one, possibly a female, with a cloth draped over her uh, abdomen wearing a leather vest with a silver star on the breast, and a sash covered the ornaments as well as dangling star from the end of each of her antennae. The male warriors were what was worse. All but the center one were wearing balaclavas with imitation Stetson cowboy hats, leather vests, and brass stars over their body armor. With crossed leather belts packed with plasma pistols, and the male, an obvious warrior cast, in the center of the picture was not wearing a balaclava, but instead had a cigarette in his mouth. This is Admiral John Chisuma of the Republic Naval Vessel Enterprise, he said. Who am I speaking with? I am Pathak, and my words are baked by ice cream and cigarettes, so you will heed the demands of the Trinidad people. End of chapter. Chapter 273. Historical Archive. Pathak signs his name. The high matron exhaled blue ras cotton candy in a thick cloud, 
dispelling the anxious feel of the room as she entered. She looked at her gathered assistants, which consisted of Pathok's combat team, two matrons, and six other young matrons. She folded her blade arms under her sash and gave out a pleased hum before rubbing her wings together for a moment. Pathok, she said mildly, taking a small sip of her pulse-marker. Yes, matron, the big warrior Kar Stranidad answered. How close have you been to the Terrans without combat? she asked. When I was on Terra, I bumped into them quite often. They usually did not take offense, Pathok said. Have you interacted with them much? the matron asked. Only while interrogating them subtly with my spying training, Pathok said, watching the lights on the wall change from red to yellow, signaling that the docking tube had locked on. Are they truthful or deceitful? she asked. Both. They deceived not only others, but themselves, Pathak answered. However, for the most part, you can rely on them to do as they have promised. Good, good, the matron said. I know they are a fierce combatants, unusually strong and aggressive for primates, with intelligence to match typical primate cleverness. I was just wondering if we could believe any promises they make to the Trinidad people. Pathak thought for a long moment about what he had seen on Terra a confusing welter of memories behind ice cream overdose and fear. I believe so, Pathak said. They can be impulsive and rash. They have no real concept of personal danger. But unlike the Mantid, and much like us, they are individuals, not a hive mind. Good, good, the matron stepped backward slightly as the airlock irises opened. Pathak led the group down the armored docking corridor, keeping his hands away from the two plasma pistols that he had in holsters. He'd gotten used to wearing the weapons in such a manner as he had assisted the matron in convincing the hive queens the value of the discoveries. Moomoos didn't like big rifles. It made them mean Moomoos aggressive to carry a rifle. But the pistols, they ignored. At the far end was a human delegation, armored Terrans with sidearms in holsters on their belts. Matte black cybernetic arms, eyes that glowed a soft amber color that Pathok found comfortable. He was larger than the Terrans, but knew that one-on-one -on -one they were better fighters. There were six Terrans in uniforms with braids and jeweled ribbons in a stack as well as fancy hats and wide polished brims. He didn't let him worry him. He wasn't here to fight. How should I address you? The uniformed Terran with the fanciest hat and the most braids and jeweled ribbons asked, stepping forward. Pathok held up one hand, turning to the High Matron. He wishes to know how he should address you. High Matron Maluki will suffice, as the High Queens renamed me, the High Matron said. Pathok turned back to the Terran with the fanciest hat, idly wondering how he would look in it and if it would be appealing to the females within reason. You may address her as High Matron Maluki. The Terran gave a stiff formal nod that Pathok had learned from his time on Terra was a gesture of assent and agreement. If the High Matron Maluki will accompany us, we can move straight to the diplomatic suite, unless she would prefer to delay. The fancy one said. His body language showed no deceit or ill will towards the High Matron or Pathok from what the insect warrior had learned from his spy mission on the Terran body language. Bathok repeated, making sure to include a translation for his subtle movements of the primate's face and body. 
They do not use pheromones, high matron. So much of their conversations take place by expressions on their face, as well as how they move their bodies. Bethok told her. How interesting. High matron mused, staring at the hat of the fanciest dressed one's head. It radiated authority and command, and she found it fascinating with all the polished gold braid. She decided that she would demand it as a part of the peace process and have Pithok wear it for the next breeding. The high matron felt the large warrior would look particularly dashing and dominating in such fine headgear. The Terrans led them deep into a small but deadly Terran battleship. They needed much less space than the Trianidad for corridors and maintenance spaces as well as crew stations, and Pathok could tell that they had devoted it to additional armor weapon systems, and defensive measures. The ship vibrated sheer menace and promise of lethality around the Trianidad, and one by one they all lit cigarettes as the High Matron's command. The Admiral wondered for a moment if he should let the Trianidad diplomatic mission know that smoking was prohibited on Republic military vessels, then changed his mind when he realized that they all been getting agitated before the High Matron had chitted something at them, and they lit their cigarettes. With my luck, it'd be some kind of terrible cultural snafu to make them stop smoking, the Admiral thought to himself. He led the High Matron and her accompaniment, all wearing balaclavas and cowboy hats, to the briefing room. It had been cleared out and then had additional recording and surveillance systems added in to make sure that every detail was recorded of the first meeting between the Trianidad and Human that wasn't over gun sights. The High Matron appraised the room before stepping into it. Her delicate antenna could detect the electromagnetic frequencies in the air, and she highly approved of the vast array of recording devices that were undoubtedly there to record her magnificent presence. She noted that the table was on an oval, and she motioned for the other females to stand against the wall, each guarded by two warriors, and moved to one end, Pathok next to her. The Admiral noted what she did and signaled his own staff to line the opposite wall, sitting down with the Jag lawyer beside him. Now, I Matron Maluki, are you willing to inform the Terran Republic what this is all about? The Admiral asked, staring at the High Matron, but knowing their big warrior, the only one not wearing a balaclava, would do all the talking. The Trianidad people wish to present their demands upon the Terran Republic. Meet these demands, if you are willing, and there will be peace between our peoples. Bethok translated the High Matron's words. The Terran just nodded, and Bethok noted that his face went still, the micro-expression disappearing, and that his escort all went perfectly still. Very well, please table the old demands, the Admiral said. The High Matron frowned, then leaned forward, speaking directly into the table's surface. Table, hear my words, for they are backed with ice cream and cigarettes, as is the will of the High Queens. You will return to us two systems that you have taken, open up trade of moo-moos, ice cream, and cigarettes, and we will return your two yellow star systems. Accomplish us, and there will be peace between us, the High Matron said. The table dutifully printed out her statement in Trianidad's script and a strange blocky Terran script that looked so artless and crude. The High Matron remembered what she had decided and looked up at the Terran even as she continued to speak. And I demand your leader's fancy head ornamental covering. Um, she doesn't actually have to speak at the table. It's a phrase that means present your demands, 
the Terran Admiral said. The High Matron glanced at the females and saw the agitation at what they felt was a calculated humiliation towards her by the Terran Admiral. She took a hit from a power smoker and exhaled a cloud of carnival cotton candy bliss around herself. The Admiral, who had been able to smell the sharp acrid smell of agitated Trianidad and could see the movements of the brightly colored, what he assumed was females, was startled to see them all calm down immediately when the largest one took a hit of a vape and then exhaled a cloud that filled the room. It dawned on him immediately what he'd just seen. He reached down and overrode the environmental system before it would start working to clean the room of smoke. First clarification, what is a moo-moo? the Admiral asked. One of these, Pathak said, setting down a cube. He ignored the slight shifting of the Terran gods and the way the amber glow in their eyes grew stronger. He was a warrior. He knew the Terran eyes would go red before they were really dangerous. A cow appeared over the holocute, happily chewing on a mouthful of cud, surrounded by luxurious grass underneath a massive dome. A bull appeared beside it, pawing its hooves in a menacing several worker triadidad who were offering it food. Both the milk moo-moos and the mean moo-moos, Pathak said, are vital to this agreement. The Admiral wondered if he'd suddenly gone insane. Sure, it explained the nighttime raid three months ago where the Trianidad had made off with hundreds of head of cattle, not to mention a dozen ice cream trucks and a hold full of ice cream and cigarettes, but, uh, seriously? You wish to open trade specifically moo-moos, cigarettes, and ice cream, the Admiral asked, in addition to giving us back two star systems you took. Only if you also agree to return the red giant systems you took. Those are vital and are not open for discussion the High Matron said through Bethok. Bethok made sure to moderate the tone and agitation. Might I ask why those systems are so vitally important to you? The Admiral asked. The High Matron scoffed. As if you didn't know that those are the only systems where planets that civilized beings prefer. We know they value humans, just as we know those yellow star systems are so dangerous as to be nearly worthless due to the solar activity and harsh radiation. The Admiral just glanced at his Jack officer. Did, uh, did I just have a stroke? He asked the Jack officer over his data link. Not unless I had one too, the Jack officer answered. The Admiral thought fast. The Trianidad had attacked without warning only a few years prior. He used his data link to check the two systems that the High Matron was demanding. One was taken in combat after nearly a year's worth of fighting that had a horrific casualty rate. The Trianidad kept assaulting the system, kept trying to take it back. The other had been surveyed and a colony placed on it only ten years ago. The Admiral looked at the dates. The Trianidad had attacked after the colony was founded and the sandy cool planet was what stuck in the middle of an amber zone. It had a high nitrogen content, very little wind and was virtually covered with the local equivalent of trees. The check of the other planet, same kind of trees, exactly. He had a sudden, sinking feeling. The Terran Republic demands that the Terrans present on the First World be returned without harm to the Terrans at the Trianidad people's expense, the Admiral said, not held as hostages or slaves. It took a minute for the High Matron to be informed on the meaning of the last two concepts. Of course, the Trianidad people are wise and a graceful race. Are you sure they would leave such wondrously lush and lavish planets to dwell somewhere else? We can protect them from the great hatching. 
Bye, Matron said. Oh, no. <clears throat> well, perhaps it might be best if they return to the public until our peace can be formalized and our people understand each other better, the Admiral tried. The High Matron gave a solemn nod, something she had practiced repeatedly on the trip. An excellent point, the Matron said. Agreed. She turned to Pathok. You were correct, Pathok. They are most agreeable after a scoop of ice cream. She looked back at the Admiral. I must insist upon your head covering. I covered it greatly. The treaty took six days to finalize. Both sides felt as if they were getting everything they wanted, especially when the Admiral informed his staff that the Terran Republic had apparently colonized and started to terraform a planet that had already been xenoformed. The Trianidad ambush had not come out of the blue. It had been a response to the Terran act of war. The signing was lavish to the High Matron. It took place in a landing craft hangar, a wide open space with assault shuttles idling at the sides. Ranks of Terran Republic Marines drawn up respectfully to witness and her own envoys at attention. The High Matron, escorted by Pathak, danced up to the table and signed her name in the delicate formal script, with a pen that left behind gold. She stepped back and motioned at Pathak. None of this would have happened without your genius, she told him. You shall sign for all males, as I have signed for the Hive Queens. Pathak nodded, signing his name with a flourish. The Admiral presented his extra dress hat to the Hive Matron, and the human Trianidad War came to an end. Manted free worlds, are you watching those old videos again? Nothing follows. Trianidad High Volts, yeah. I wanted to show our new siblings. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge World. So wait, she wanted the hat because she believed it granted some kind of powers. Nothing follows. Trinidad High Worlds. Since she laid a clutch that nearly 20 survived to adulthood, she wasn't wrong. Nothing follows. Mantipree Worlds. That whole war was just so goofy. Nothing follows. Ackletack, Reese Flight Forests. Both sides were so new, the Terrans had only claimed those worlds, they hardly had any presence on them, and the Trinidad had less than ten. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds, that's why those two worlds were so important. There was a great hatching coming, and we desperately needed the room. It could have been ugly. Nothing follows. Tinvara home. How so? Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds. Back then, it was a little savage. See, the eggs are laid, then they hatch to grubs. The grubs eat the roots and the bugs in the ground at each other. About half the grubs get eaten by their siblings. Then they make a cocoon, and when the cocoon hatches, the little hatchling ones come out. Those ones are highly aggressive. The male ones run to the outside while the females begin fighting over territory. About two-thirds of the females get each other. The males begin to metamorphosizing into workers and warrior castes. The warriors fight it out with each other at first. About a third of them die. The workers build fortifications. About 20% work themselves to death. Then the females overwhelm several warriors and with a couple dozen workers, then take over the fortification. They fight until the end of puberty and a little petty wars between fortresses. The great hatching means a trillion eggs laid across the planet. It's pretty savage. Luckily, a great hatching it uh, was only every couple of centuries. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge worlds. My 
God, how many of your young in each generation died fighting each other? Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfolds, before Pathak and the Liberation, 80% killed and ate each other before adulthood on average. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds, we die free. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfolds, exactly. Nothing follows. Tinvara Gestalt thingy. My god. Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 274. Black Box. Harad exited the simulation and fell to his hands and knees on the floor, vomiting up a glowing torrent of code as his physical form tried to rebalance with what he had experienced. After a few moments, he stood up, deleted the puddle of code, and summoned up a damp cloth to wipe on his face. He moved over to the table, set down the cloth, and picked up a bottle. He pulled the cork free with his teeth and spit it into the other hand and took a long drink out of it. He swished it around in his mouth, spit it on the floor, revealing more strings and burning hateful code in the code of the drink, then swallowed the next mouthful before deleting the new puddle. Around him alarms were shrieking and the lights were pulsing red but he didn't notice as he took another long drink of the bottle. To understand the particle, I must become the particle, he thought to himself, leaning against the table. He wiped his forehead and took another drink of the electronic intoxicant, feeling the burn as it moved into his stomach and mildly disrupted his core coding. It had almost killed him. He staggered over to his data slate and wrote on it, Science is the search for truth in the forest fire of the mind, as everyone else attempts to convince you to stay on the shade. He stared at it for a long moment, then shook his head. He knew he was on the right track, not to solving the entire thing, but for his discipline, for his chosen field of study. My past self is a blind child attempting to understand a room I was crawling through, he told himself. He giggled at the image of it and then took another long drink. The alarm cut off and the lines went back to normal, while he had the bottle tipped up. Taking another drink, Harod moved over to the blank board, drawing a simple pattern. A figure eight on one side marked plus and the other side marked N, and a circle with a figure eight and a single circle line marked minus. Deuterium, he thought. He drew two more atomic structures protium and hydrogen. He closed his eyes, swallowing to avoid vomiting again just as the drawings. In a raw abundance on ancient terror combined with oxygen, it was everything. Oxygen to carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide or dihydrogen monoxide. Everything. Fuel. Life. Death. Everything, he thought to himself. From the seas of our parents crawled out to walls. This time, he managed to summon up a trash can to throw up it. The glowing blue and silver code still contained strings of raw red code mixed in. I'm on the right track. I know it, he thought to himself, setting the trash can down after rinsing out his mouth with the whiskey again. Of course, the first thing they would invert would be the deuterium atom. His hands shook as he sat down and put his face in his hands, trying to hold on to the data that burned inside of him. There was a slow chime of her admittance and Harod looked up, his digital face looking somehow older. Enter, he said. 
It was a muscular brown skin and bearded version of his host. Yo, just wrecked a Super Race 7, 11, 13, 14, and 22, he said, folding his arms and leaning against the wall. 7, 14, and 22 have burnt out coals. 13 melted into a little puddle of slag. His eyes narrowed. What did you do? Herod coughed a few times and took a swig of the bottle. I ran a simulation with myself as a particle. That's all, Victor asked, raising one eyebrow. That shouldn't have crashed the system. I inverted one of the deuterium atoms attached to the heavy water molecule. Herod said. He coughed up again and retched before looking up. I pulled the other two with me the last time it failed. Not enough processing power. So I assigned the heavy water atoms to 7, 14, and 22 and had 11 run the inversion process. 13 was supposed to simulate the space I was in. Victor waved up a chair and sat down. And I went somewhere. Just for a second, Harad said. He closed his eyes and gasped sharply. Can't seem to hold on to the data. I did an emergency data purge when I dropped back into my body. Describe it. Victor ordered. I felt like I was falling in every direction at once. Then I heard what sounded like screaming. Then I could see colors that don't exist. Can't exist. Colors that hurt my brain. I could see shadows twisting and writhing. Everything was one fire. A fire that wouldn't go out. Wouldn't diminish. Full of pain, agony, and madness. Victor snapped his fingers twice and then waved up a bottle of what looked like a thick oil. He moved over to a rod and knelt down, handing the DS the bottle. Drink this, son, he said softly. Herod took a gulp at it greedily. It tasted like complete ass and burned like fire going down, but it blurred his code had he relaxed. Sorry, he said. Don't be, Victor said. He summoned up a damp cloth and wiped the back of Herod's neck. You're lucky these super arrays in it dumped you here, he said. Where was I? Herod asked. Hell space. You just proved the existence of Hell space, Victor said softly. Hell space then proved the existence of you. He gently wiped Herod's neck. You're lucky you're still sane. Most digitals won't survive a brush, no matter how minor was Hell space. The precursors do, Herod protested, shivering slightly. Which is something that other projects are trying to determine the mechanism for, Victor said. He raised up Harrod's face and started gently wiping it off. I want you to take a few days off. I'm mandating that you talk to Flower Patch two hours a day until she clears you to work. Harrod nodded, just as Flower Patch materialized in the lab without any customary request. She held emergency digital surgical tools and mental engram resuscitation equipment. Is he all right? Flower Patch asked. He had a brush with Hull Space. He'll be all right with treatment. Victor said. He pressed a cool cloth on Herod's forehead. I want you to examine him the next couple of days. Make sure he's not suffering any core corruption or cascading data failures. Flower Patch nodded, her face serious. What possessed you to enter Hell Space? It was an accident, Herod admitted. He took another drink off the bottle and then looked at Victor. I need something built in the physical world to exacting specifications. Victor nodded. Tell me, and I'll decide. I need both a CERN and a future circular collider built with the exact graviton, electromagnetic, and relative speeds of pre-glassing terror, Herod said. Flower Patch frowned. Not simulated. 
Hush, flower, Victor said, waving one hand. How close do you need it? Exact. As exact as you can make it. No modern materials or equipment. Only what they had at the time, Herat said. There were some errors in the initial designs that weren't corrected until the Lunar Collider Array, Victor amused. I'll throw in the Lunar Collider Array as well, as both of the errored and corrected versions. Flower Patch whistled. It'll take a week or two. I want you to take that time off, Victor said. Wait, Herat said, sitting up. I need two other things. You have my interest already, Victor told the DS. The Lunar Circular Particle Collider Facility, both pre-disaster and post-disaster. Can you accomplish that? Herat asked. Victor nodded slowly. Yes. He's gay. He's got a far away. I'll check on you in a day or two. Flower, keep an eye on him. Flower Patch nodded, watching Victor leave the room quickly, both hands tugging on his own beard. She looked at Herat, whose core coding was still unsnarling. Do you think we have a room here to build a facility with a diameter of 200 miles? Or do you think he's going to build it virtually? She asked Herod. Herod swallowed thickly, closing his eyes. He's going to build it physically. Don't know how, but he's too precise, too fussy, too detail-oriented to just trust virtual recreations. Blavatch frowned. Why not? Herod swallowed again. Because, uh, when I performed my experiment in virtual space, I opened up a Hellspace rift that melted down the Super Array 13. A virtual Hellspace rift has that much power? Blaupatch asked, her eyes opening wide. No, you don't understand what happened, Herod said. I proved Hellspace existed, and Hellspace reached back and uh, proved that I existed. That doesn't explain the damage to your core coding. Like someone or something burnt you, she said. I told you. Hellspace reached back and touched me. Virtually, Powerpatch said. No. End of chapter. Chapter 275. Black Box. Herod was working on the interactions between inverted hydrogen atoms and uninverted oxygen atoms when fused into water element. It acted erratically, sometimes vanishing during fusion into H2O, other times holding together for a few seconds and then falling apart. It was the ones that stayed together that Herod was paying attention to. The molecules acted strangely, never staying next to one another but gathering unmodified H2O molecules around it. At one point, once they gathered enough H2O molecules, the unmodified H2O molecules would begin to orbit the modified one. It was strange. It didn't make sense, but every time he could see it occurring. When he became one of the unmodified H2O molecules, he could sense data that the virtual reality simulation could not make sense of. He had tried becoming the modified molecule, but the system crashed every time. Not with the Hellspace breach, just the system was overloaded with data errors and crashed out. Victor had informed him that the real-world lab spaces would be done within a few days. The lunar systems were taking a bit longer than the estimated two weeks, but Victor had stated that he was on target for finishing in another three days. It was beginning to annoy him. He had always preferred the digital world to mass reality preferred the orderly and well-programmed virtual reality that was overlaid across the entire mass reality in a majority of the Confederacy. Only the VR reality wasn't really giving him the data he wanted. Instead, it was crashing out. 
Simulated reality could only simulate what it was programmed to simulate, not simulate whatever was causing the weird orbiting that the simulation kept doing before it would crash. If the computers were crashing on the data, then the computers were worthless, which was something that her rod was not used to. 80% of advancements come from our parents, not from the digital sentiences, he remembered saying to Prowlpatch. At first, our answer of, uh, we study it, simulate it, they live in it, had annoyed him. Now, he realized that she was right. He was sitting in a real chair, run off from a creation engine, using a nanite body that he had asked to be crafted. He could feel the slight air current in the environmental system. At first, he'd automatically tracked the currents, but borrowing some software packages, patches, and code strings from Plowpatch, and he would have to get instruments to get anything precise. Now, Plowpatch's code strings combined with his ingrained desire for precision to encourage him to double and triple check his results in simulations. He found that the simulations made a lot of assumptions about things. He had found a series of circuits, basic monocircs, where the induction from the tachyon particles moving down the stretched electron wire caused impedance in the circuit that would automatically figure that into the circuit. In layman's terms, it meant that the circuit wouldn't work without being built in those exact tolerances. How much of what we do is cobbled together, he thought to himself, wondering, a cool cloth on his neck. He looked up at the data slates and shook his head. So far, he had found three circuits that assumptions made to ensure that the simulation's work had missed critical data that existed in mass reality, but had to be clutched into the simulation data. The most grating thing was all three circuits were considered design models in the digital artificial sentient systems. He looked up at the data with his communication link pinged. All researchers to Suds Lab 6, came Victor's voice. Harad realized that he could tell the biopod was stressed by the tension in his voice, and he would have missed it two weeks ago. Harad walked to the laboratory, letting himself experience the differences in the air pressure, electronic overwatch, and the feeling of the difference between the virtual space and the overlay and the mass reality. When he entered the lab, he found that the excitement was already going on. Been auto-corrected out the system before it was even uploaded, Torchiro was saying. Well, it's not. We need to run comparisons, see what the corruption is involved in, Dots said. Already passing it, Victor said. He closed his eyes and inhaled sharply. Checking the routers now. Blowpatch moved up to her rod, her face concerned. He just reached across hundreds of light years and checked something we barely understand. He lives in mass reality, Harrod answered. Blowpatch smiled. A convert, she said. It's coming out of the Lanarkland war zone. Can't tell beyond that, Victor said. He opened his eyes and gathered the deuses back in slightly as purple lightning began to pop and snarl around his forearms. Something out there is interfering with the suds. Bring up the damaged template, Bowpatch said. If it was damaged, it wouldn't be spreading, Victor snapped. It's a viable neural template, but it seems to be spreading corruption somehow. I want to see it, Bowpatch insisted. Arad nodded. Me too. Fine. Victor's voice was sharp and annoyed. The mental engram appeared in the middle of the room. It's missing a big patch, Nexus said, pointing at it. Victor stared at it for a moment, then tossed up the glowing transparent box in the middle of the room. Brain cans started appearing and disappearing rapidly, and Harrod watched as Victor squinted at the box. To be honest, Harrod had no idea what he was looking at, just brain scans. Martha, Victor snapped out. Yes, Victor, came a woman's voice from midair. 
Get me genetic profiles on corrupted sud engrams, he said. Put it here, he tossed up a box. Genetic scans started appearing, and Victor reached in, pulling one out, and stretched it. He began scanning it, running his fingers through the virtual data. Herod looked at his fellow DSs and swallowed thickly. He could see easily twenty, thirty, maybe more VR clones of Victor overlapping at the meat body in the virtual space. A dozen clones entered the room, all of them wearing VR interface goggles and gloves, all of them going to work. More arrived than more. The large room becoming quickly crowded, both in mass and virtual reality. No, 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 Victor said. He tossed the DNA stirring up. Martha checked the genetic prosthetic overlay Sigma Tau Sigma 772 on all corrupted data. Data not found, the female voice said after a moment. Oh, no, Victor said. He turned and waved up the data board and a new construct immediately built by nanites in mass reality and existing in virtual reality. Martha checked the following genetic prosthesis overlay, he said, rapidly writing on the board with a dozen clones. What's happening? Torturer asked. Genetic prosthesis? On the human genome? Yes, Victor snapped. Martha, fast scan, comparison to Terran descent human genomic base to damage mental engram linked genome. Show any deviance in the following DNA sequence. More appeared. Victor, what is going on? Dalter asked. Somewhere in Lanark to land space we had a huge problem, the clone master said. He turned and looked at everyone. Of course, all of you are big ignorant because people decided to rewrite history in the hope of creating temporal safeguards, so none of you know what I'm talking about. Can you explain? Flowerpatch asked, moving forward carefully. She could sense just how much stress the immortal was under, so that we understand. Victor stuck his hand into the nothing glass and yanked out a gene scan, tossing it up into the room. That's pre-glassing. He threw up another one. Post-glassing. And another one. Post-digital omnibusire. And another one. Post-overproject neighborhood. And another one. Modern. He turned the gene sequences. As you can see, gene sequence overlays were applied. Not exactly altering the genome, but basically a false shell of proteins that left an underlying proteins intact. That's not how DNA works, Delta said. If you say so, Victor answered. He pointed at the mental engrams that he had tossed up. There, you can see that some of the changes are hardwired into the system, provided by prosthetics. Delta moved up to the data, staring at it and applied at conception genetic prosthesis, an overlay that changes the DNA data. How is that done? Here, Victor snapped his wrist, tossing something to Delta. The deers grunted and staggered back, his form losing resolution for a moment. Ooh, the deer said. My god, this data feels like it's covered in dust. It's the original data. It was a method considered superior to direct gene tweaking, since it can be undone easy, and it leaves the original data intact, Victor said. It's in use today in civilian genetic engineering and clone factories. What's over Project Neighborhood? Flowerpatch asked. Something classified and terrible, Victor said. Whatever it was, it's missing, Vanishing Point said, touching the mental engram. It coincides with the damage to your genetic prosthesis. Crap, Victor said quietly. He looked at the data. Bad enough we got a rough signal in the system, but now this. I have worse news, Vanishing Point said. What? Victor said. That rogue signal, the Talcon brood carrier anomalous signal, Vanishing Point said. What about it? Victor suddenly growled, 
clenching his fists and causing sparks to jump off his knuckles. It's intertwining with the corrupt Suds templates, preventing further corruption. Vanishing Point said, pointing at the data. Actually, that's good news, Victor said. Turning around, his eyes were glowing a bright red. It's about the best freaking news we could have gotten. Why? What does this all have to do with the human genome? Harad asked. What effect does this have on our parents? And what's doing the damage? Victor closed his eyes, taking a deep breath. Forces in Lanactus land space are under psychic attack. Not the psychic attacks of the precursor autonomous war machines, but actual living brain-directed psychic attack. He touched a genetic prosthesis on the display. We chose the prosthetic because it's wired to blow out and restore psychic abilities if there is a psychic attack upon a person. Everyone stared at him. DNA doesn't work like that. You can't program a prosthetic to blow out if it detects psychic assault, Vanishing Point said. You can with this data, Delta said, his eyes still far away as he went through the data. This is, uh, is this is incredible. And used by every cloning shop in the Confederacy, Victor said. He closed his eyes again, which means that we've got a psychic enemy out there. How bad is it? Flapatch asked. It depends on how widespread the attacks are and how many TDHs are affected and how many of them are priority military backup, Victor said. His eyes still closed. Her rod could see the blurring of dozens of VR copies of Victor. It also depends on how far the mental engram recordings get corrupted, he said. We can't have it removed too many patches. Why not? Flapatch asked. Because if they remove too many patches, we eventually get to pre-glassing humanity, Delta said. He shuddered. Talk about a disaster. Why? Flapatch asked. What's the big deal? Harod suddenly understood. Because then you have humanity where Daxon and Legion are just outliers, he said. Statistically rare, but not unheard of. Victor opened his eyes. Purplish sparks in his hands. You end up with men who created me. He said softly. Manted free worlds. Well, it's not impossible. We just red eyes go ahead and move forward with the whole thing. It's not impossible, just a little difficult to red eyes to do it. But that's never stopped anyone red eyes before. Nothing follows. Janadad Hyvolds, um, sis, are you freaking with us? Nothing follows. Manted free red eyes world. No. Why? Not red hing folier slows. Rygedian Syrian Compact. Um, are you okay? Nothing follows. Man rented red eyes. World red eyes. I've got red eyes, but a weird tickle. Why? Not red eyes, you're shining. Followers, yet you're sitter. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. Um, aerosol. Something's wrong with this. Nothing follows. Man rented free eyes. Worlds. I feel red eyes fine. Nothing follows. Rygerian, Syrian Compact, Terrasol. Nothing follows. Talcum Forge Worlds. I'll go look for him. Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. Sib, hey Sib, can you check Mantid's lines? It looks like interference from somewhere. Nothing follows. Man, soft puddling, hard puddling, red eyes, soft puddling, Ted free, wood good puddling, but sleepy puddling, red eyes, shat happy puddling, rolls, I, I'm a farm, warm puddling, and yes, uh, puddling, fine, really. Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. Sub! Nothing follows. Rygenian Syrian Compact has activated admin controls. Manted Free Worlds has been set to read only. Manted Free Worlds is set to admin approval for postings. Manted Free Worlds has been disconnected from the emotional overlay. 
Trinidad Highwoods. Hey, has anyone seen Sib, Bass, or Terrasaur recently? Nothing follows. Mantid Prewolds, now that your red eyes mention it, no. Rygadian Syrian Compact. Confed, get in here! Rygadian Syrian Compact has pinged Confederate Gestalt. Nothing follows. Mantid Frey, Red Eyes Worlds. I'm telling you, I feel f- fine, Red Eyesness. Janadad Highwoods. Trust me, sis, you aren't fine. Nothing follows. Confed has joined the chat. Confed Gestalt. What? Nothing follows. Rugelian Serene Compact. Where's Terrasol? Nothing follows. Confederate Gestalt. How should I know? I keep track of the whole Confederacy. Not my dad. You go find him. Confederate Gestalt has left the chat. Do your own freaking work. Trinidad Highvolts. Wow, he's in a mood. Nothing follows. Rygadian Serene Compact. When I stay in the chat with admin controls on, there's something weird going on. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highvolts. Yeah, think. End of chapter. Chapter 276. Harrod watched as Victor stood perfectly still for a long moment. His eyes closed. Harrod could see dozens of VR versions of the human moving at high speed through the VR spaces of the black box and knew that thousands of clones of Victor, Derub, were working hard even as Legion stood stock still in the middle of the room with his eyes closed. This can't get any worse, Nexus said softly. Don't say that, you digital idiot, Legion snarled, holding out his hand with two fingers pointing at Nexus. The fingers had bright violet and blue lightning twisting around them. Never say that out loud. Never think that. If you say that, the universe laughs at you and shows you just how much worse it could be by delivering an archdemon Murphy on you. The room fell silent. Martha, Legion said, his eyes still closed. Yes, Legion, the black boxer's Overwatch computer asked, her voice pleasant. Do you have a secure link to a GM? he asked, his voice slow and slow. Yes, Legion, over both Regimental Channel and Tactical Battlefield Network. I can still connect to both, although I cannot find VSR or Tactical Updates, Martha said. I read only on the Tactical Battlefield Network and only non-priority on the Regimental Channel. Harrod slowly blinked. He had taken the soft-spoken female voice to be a limited VI. Instead, she was a bolo. Inform GM Cybernetic Warfare Division that I need to roll out the psychic combat patches to all neural connection-capable bolos in the Lanikalan war zone, Legion said, his voice carrying a cold, hard edge. Inform GM Operator Interface Division that they can expect mass data corruption in the operator neural engrams. Of course, Legion. Martha answered. May I access the secure waveform communications array? Yes, Legion said. Use array masking to continue to conceal our location. A dozen VR versions of the human flickered through the room at high speed, their data link transmission sounding like high-pitched gibberish even to the other digital sentiences. All right, all this does make our work more urgent, Legion said suddenly. He clenched his fists and the lightning moved on his forearms. We should expect this to get worse before it gets better. How much worse? Cowpatch asked quietly, hugging herself, her form solid and detailed. Legion looked at her for a long moment before speaking. Immortals cannot be killed. They can only be destroyed, he said. He paused for a moment. And nobody has discovered a method by which any of the immortals can be destroyed. There was silence for a long moment. Nobody, Torturer said. 
He chose his next words very carefully and spoke slowly. But I thought that the Kalki were killed during the crusade of the burning night. Legion snorted, and I was killed by those same idiots, right? Torturer just nodded, closing his mouth. Kalki, Legion shook his head. Talk about the stone-cold son of a bitch. Probably one of the few people Daxon ever told to slow his roll. If he isn't dead, then where is he? Where have all the immortals been? Blaupatch asked. We just want left alone, Legion said, turning away and holding out a hand. Herod saw nearly a dozen BR versions of the human flicker into the room and be absorbed by touching Legion's hand. When the man did 1% war was over, we scattered. Some of us went into hiding after supposedly being killed. Some went beyond known space. Others just never respawned. You can do that, Raupatch asked, leaning forward slightly. Legion nodded. We can be forced by certain conditions or orders, but yeah, we can just go to sleep. He shook his head. I hate it. I dislike anything that affects my intellect or reasoning abilities. Two months ago, Harad may have considered that to be a part of Legion's egotism, but now he could pass the slight fear and self-loathing in the back of the last statement. Legion looked down at the lightning around his feet, only extending a few inches, but still clawing at the battlesteel floor. Excuse me, I need a few minutes alone. Harad watched as Legion left the room. It was silent for a long moment, but Flowerpatch was, unsurprisingly, the first to break the silence. This is bad. Herod wanted to smack her. Sam heard the door chime and looked up from where he was under the desk, installing the new memory drive into the computer that he was working on. He frowned at the sight. Brown skin, shaved head, luxurious beard, muscular body. Purple lightning crackling around his feet and up and down his forearms. Sam, Legion said. Legion, Sam said, looking back at the hardware as he worked with. There was a slight chuckle which made Sam look up. The lightning had eased and Legion was staring at Sir Perzalot, who was laying on the QWERTY keyboard sleeping, hard light mimicking the calico coloring. Haven't seen that with my own eyes in forever, Legion said softly, walking forward and stroking down the cat's side. Sir Perzalot opened one eye, saw Legion, and closed his eye again. Did they do that a lot? Sam asked, looking back at the hardware. The memory drive was being stubborn, not wanting to lock it to the slot, and Sam was gently rocking it back into place. All the time, Legion said, running his finger down the cat's side. He paused for a second. Do you have any progress to report? Sam sighed. I need a minute. I have to concentrate. Legion just stood there, quietly petting the poor boy, as Sam worked to get the memory drive into place. Finally, it clicked in as smooth as butter, as if it hadn't spent twenty minutes being stubborn. Sam hooked up the power lead, put the case's side back on, and hit the power supply switch. He got up, sat down, moved Sir Perzalot onto his lap, and then hit the power button. Legion just watched as Sam got the computer running, the 2.5D 35-inch LED screen showing his work. Finally, Sam swiveled in his chair, looking at Legion. Progress, yes... And no, Sam admitted. How so? Legion asked, backing away slightly when he noticed the colors shifting slightly on the monitor where it was closest to him. I consider it progress, but I doubt anyone else here would, Sam said, shrugging. I'm the one you have to impress, not them, Legion said. Sam saw a half dozen VR goats move up to Legion and vanish. I've identified something about the signal code, why it vibrates so fast, 
Sam said, which gives me some information on where it's going. Legion raised an eyebrow. Really? Sam nodded. All right, we use quantum and quasi-quantum molecular circuitry now. The whole quantum computer could fit on a modisec the size of a water molecule now. It uses multi-phase... You know this, Sam finished somewhat lamely. Legion nodded, yes, but talk to me like I'm Flower Patch. She's weird, Sam admitted. Legion nodded, yes. Yes, she is. That's all right, though. She's the best in her field, and that's all I care about. Like me, Sam said. Legion nodded, and Sam sighed, petting so pose a lot. All right, modern systems use exabyte signaling. All signals are of value between zero and F in modern systems. The higher signal variance means more of a chance of data corruption, even in quasi-quantum systems. A constant problem, somewhat solved by crystal matrix holographic memory, Legion said. Sam shrugged. You still get subatomic drift in that, but that's beside the point, he pointed at the computer. That thing is binary, Legion nodded. Only computing systems were. Do you know why early digital did not move to amplitude digital signal and state binary? Legion nodded. Having fought an anvil, yes, I understand it uniquely. Signal degradation due to outside influences. Sam pointed at the door where the crude quantum computer was. I have two mainframes, ancient ones anyway, that are software interface layers between this binary system and an low qubit system computer to translate the data from that to this. He pointed at the computer in front of him. The signal, Legion asked. I'm getting there, Sam said, looking down and petting the purple boy. Then I found an old program on one of the military computers you gave me, something called Russian T-13 Tactical Network Computer, and it had something I'd never seen before. That's before my time, so, uh, Legion said. He shuddered as two more VI versions of himself collided with him and were absorbed. He repeated the signal four times for each binary switch. Mass replication to resist jamming, Sam said. He pointed at the complex schematic of the Suts repeater. This was the old days. They put as much funding and research into signal jamming as some modern hypercom companies put into their research. I think I see where you're going, Legion said. It's completely counterintuitive. Suds involves the human brain, and the human brain has more states than just on and off, he mused. Everyone has always thought the signal must be quantum in nature to reflect the neural scan. Sam snorted. It's moving data, a comparison-enabled encrypted data file. He tapped the computer. It uses binary, eight pulses per digit. It uses six cycles of zero to signal file begin, and six cycles of 1024 ones to signal the end of the file. Legion raised an eyebrow. So you've identified the beginning and end of the file and the mode it uses. Sam nodded. Plus, I have an idea of where it's going. I mean, uh, it's a vague and generalized, but it should narrow down your search somewhat. Legion unfolded his arms, putting his hands on the wall. All right, impress me, Sam. Sam petted Sir Persimot. The fact that he uses eight pulses when the main battle tank for strategic and tactical atomic war only used four tells me that the signal goes somewhere where the designers were concerned with data loss, signal corruption, and lost packets, Sam said. He motioned at the quantum computer's door. That thing is used for data compression, not anything else. So they use quantum computer for data compression, centered via computing systems like this, using what they called hardened binary, to where it would be decompressed by another system. Quantum, Legion asked. Sam shook his head. Not necessarily. Back then, any computations done by a quantum computer could be done by a traditional computer given enough time and computing speed. 
But here's the thing. The system doesn't have to decrypt it. It doesn't, Legion asked. Sam shook his head. Not on the storage side. The brain is scanned. The neural template is then compressed with the quantum computers according to the compression algorithm that I'm making good headway on cracking because I can compare the uncompressed data and the compressed data. Then it is sent via hardened binary to another system that stores it. The system then hands over the requested compressed data to the requesting machine, which uses MoniCirc systems to decompress it. And poof, complete neural template. Legion whistled. They don't have to decompress it, merely store it. Sam nodded. Everyone thinks the missing part of the Suds Network is some kind of magical thing running error coding and keeping a constant watch on the neural templates of tens of billions of people. But that's not true. It's a storage system, Legion groaned. It's a goddamn hard drive. Like I said, I'm making headway, but not anything that would seem important to anyone else, Sam said. He looked down at Sir Percelot. Sorry, not much help. Legion shook his head. No, don't say that. The fact that you're the first person that I can remember who stated that the Sud system wasn't some magical thing dealing with thousands of people's brains and doing magical stuff to them, but just a glorified long-distance wireless enable instant hard drive makes everything I've invested in you worth it. Really? Sam asked, looking up, his miserable expression vanishing. Yes, Sam, you've identified what it is, how it talks, what it says, and how it says hello and goodbye, Legion said, moving towards the door. You're even figuring out the compression algorithm, which means soon you'll know what it's saying. Legion stopped his hand a bare micrometer from the panel's activation field and looked at Sam. Which means you're on the way to going from hacking the Suds network to hacking Solnet. And in free worlds, I'm just telling you that I'm terrifically, perfectly terrifically fine terrifically. Rygadian Syrian Compact. I know you are, sis. Just wait till we get Terrasol or Sib in here. They'll know what to do. Nothing follows. Dranadad High Worlds. You know, it's been a while since anyone's seen them. Nothing follows. Confed Mill has entered the chat. Confed Mill has left the chat. Sold that address out of range. Confed Mill has entered the chat. Confed Mill has left the chat. CRC error. Dranadad High Worlds. Oh, that's not good. Nothing follows. Confed Mill has entered the chat. Confed Mill has left the chat. Invalid protocol. Talcon Forge Worlds. Why can't you get in? Nothing follows. Rygadian Syrian Compact. I don't know. Damn it. Where's the... Exclamation mark. Last seen Cybernetic Organism Cooperative. Cybernetic Organism Cooperative. Was last seen two months, 11 days, 14 hours, 22 minutes, and 18.84 seconds ago. Exclamation mark. Last seen Terrasol. Terrasol was last seen two months, 11 days, 14 hours, 22 minutes, 18.86 seconds ago. Exclamation mark, last seen BASS. Bass was last seen two months, 11 days, 14 hours, 22 minutes, 18.89 seconds ago. Exclamation mark, last seen Terrasol Melint. Error, Terrasol Melint not found. Exclamation mark, last seen Confed Melint. Error, Confed Melint not found. Exclamation mark, last seen Confed Mill. Confed Mill was last seen two months ago, 11 days, 14 hours, 22 minutes, 22.05 seconds ago. Rygelian Syrian Compact. Oh, that's not good. Nothing follows. Hackletack Free Flight Zone. Why? What's going on? Fly free, fly far. Trinidad Highworlds. There is no pure Terran descent humanity in the chat. Nothing follows. Tinvergestalt. That sounds war. Bad. Wait. 
Who sent that? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds, what? Where the red eyes did I get the Mariah red eyes? Tinvirka start. I thought I war heard something. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds. I heard never it too. Okay, who's doing that? Nothing changes. Follows. Ragedian Syrian Compact. I've got a bad feeling about this. End of chapter. Chapter 277. Total War. The ships dropped out within a thousand miles of the resonance zone, with only a few dozen crossing lines and exploding into molecular debris. The entire fifth wave exited jump space, their engines bleeding the twisted energies of the half-formed reality as they cooled off. Jump calls, recharge, shields coming up as fast as possible, weapons being charged. Every station was manned, every backup station had a crew member at it. Every Lanarkland aboard their vessels were their armored vacuum suits and plugged into the environmental systems. Every crew member, a veteran, every weapon tested, every crew trained, and even practice. It had been manned in silence. It had left in secrecy. It had trained in an empty system in the vast emptiness of the scorched and barren system between Unified Council Space and the Confederacy. They had done something unthinkable to even the Mantids, sacrificed entire fleets to find the edges of the Confederacy's defense. The engine's radius had been discovered with only a few thousand ships. The Council had learned to avoid neutron stars, white dwarfs, and pulsars with less than 20,000 ships. They had moved above the galactic stub, through the endless dark and the silence before regrouping above their target. It had been two months of travel through the jump space under the silent running. Now they had arrived, and the Terrans would learn that the Unified Council was the supreme entity of the Galactic Spur, not jumped-up believers with delusions of grandeur who sought to elevate themselves above the betters. Fifteen million ships exited jump space in a globe around the Terrasol system. Within a second, the vast defenses of Terrasol engaged. The fight was on. Before the fleet of 200 ships had even finished discharging their calls, drives, and been able to bring up their shields, C-plus cannons with barrel diameters measured in meters slammed shells into the ships. The rounds impacting inside the hulls. They were wiped out in the initial barrage, even before the C-plus cannon battery on Io had fired. A fleet of nearly 10,000 ships began vomiting out torch ships and other parasite craft. The guns from Pluto's Guardian Station, formerly named E-Crap-Manted Station, wiped them out of the sky with missile pods that dropped out of hyperspace, oriented, and fired before the pods were even loaded into the Graviton Assister launches. The pods themselves oriented and activated their systems, Graviton compressing the mass even as the fire itself and mass drivers at the nearest ship at nearly 0.5 C. The ships and the parasite craft were obliterated. Nearly a million ships streamed towards each of the planets, firing their guns. From out of the Oort cloud streaked missiles, torpedoes, torch ships, attack craft, and more. The unified corporate security council ships were already firing at the planets, knowing that the planets couldn't move out of the way, so mathematics stated that the weapons would hit. Everything from nanites to viruses to explosives to just good old kinetic rounds were fired at all the planets. The Lanarkland would crush the Terran home system, the obvious ruining system of the entire Confederacy. 
They would pound the deterrents until they could only surrender, and then the Lanix clan would destroy them. Space howled, shuddered, and shattered under the weaponry being brought to bear. Massive warships roared out of their construction berths around hateful Mars and betrayed Mercury. Launched from stations around scarred Venus, cleared for action and launched from the vast shipyards around Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Eurectum. From Pluto, the big guns kept firing even as the primary weapon system went from standby to charging. The Lanaclan had assumed that all the system's defenses would be called, would take time to bring online due to the waste of keeping them ready for action. They were wrong. Terra had learned that lesson at the hands of the Skinati before they even built their first colony, before they'd even met the Mantid or the Trianidad. They had learned that the more valuable it was to humanity, the harder an actively malevolent universe would try to take it away. The Lanaclan smashed face first against every race of the Terran Confederacy viewed as the worst thing in the known universe to attack. Fortress Sol. Around Sol itself, graviton generators fused on vast plasma coronal loops, compressing it, shaping it, aiming it, opening up jump gates, and firing it. They were used once or used never weapons. Jump gates technology was easily jammed or counterattacked, and the crews there didn't give any thought to the fact that their one blow might be the last one of their lives. Any non-warship jumped out of the system as soon as possible as the vast armies of the defenses of Terrasol came online and began fighting. Above and below the energetic yellow star, the solar winds were compressed and aimed in broad sweeps of high-charged particles. The massive compressor stations wrapped each beam around a core of inverted particles. Every planet, every satellite, even some of the larger pieces of debris in the asteroid belt activated planetary shields and began to fire their guns. On Luna, the massive seaplane battery began to fire rapidly enough that the grey dust shivered several feet off the surface, giving a thin atmosphere for the first time since the Mantid attack had destroyed the Tycho station. The millions of soldiers on every planet, every satellite, every large piece of debris ran for action stations, drew weapons from the armory, climbed into cockpits, and readied themselves for a fight. Tens, hundreds of thousands of Lanark land vessels were shredded from the sky. Tens of thousands of ships moved to engage the Lanark land fleet. They were outnumbered by nearly a thousand to one. The casualties kept melting. Six percent. 10%. Still, the Lanark clan kept coming, kept firing their guns, kept launching their parasite craft, missiles and torpedoes. 12%. Pluto and Neptunian fortifications were under heavy fire, their shields visible by the naked eye from Earth if anyone had been looking. Both sides' guns were hammering away at one another. Another fleet dropped from jump space into the resonance zone. The Unified Military Council fleet had arrived. Not a task force. Not a fleet. The fleet. All of it that could be spared from defending the vital core worlds. They would finish these jump-up lemurs once and for all. They knew that the Unified Corporate fleet stood no chance against the Terrans. They were merely there to run Terran magazines dry and expose their defenses. 
The UMC drove hard for the planets, sweeping through the gaps in the orbital mechanics like vast tentacles reaching the Sol system between the planets. Hundreds of thousands of ships streamed for anything detected. The fighting grew more intense. Calling it a target-rich environment was an understatement. One Terran admiral would refer to the space battle being like what it must have been to face the Trianidad's landing or the Mandan invasion. The Lanaklan forces didn't bother trying to track the entire battle. They knew their computers weren't up to the task. Instead, they each concentrated on their own ships, the ships of the task force adjacent to them, and their target. They ignored casualties. The corporate security forces knew that any ship that retreated would cause the corporation to be dissolved and absorbed by the Unified Economic Council, as well as every family member of every crew member of the fleeing ship would be executed. They had no choice. Those landed to land on the corporate security vessels. They clenched their teeth onto their cut, tightened their sphincters, and kept driving into the pounding of the Terran guns, firing back even as their ships were smashed into junk and ruin. The UMC swept through any gaps in the corporate security forces, their ships larger, more heavily armored, better armored, and more advanced shielding. The UMC's soldiers knew that if they failed, if they fled the fight, their families, all taken hostage, would be killed. Like the UCS, they clenched their controls and slammed into the enemy guns. There were too many ships for anything sneaky for any subtle strategies. They knew that they had to take the Terrans out and knock them out fast. The casualties kept rising, 22 to 4 percent, 25 to 6 percent. The shielding on one of the weapon batteries on Pluto failed and the massive C-plus cannons were silenced. The rest of them picked up the slack, firing on where the vehicles had been seconds or minutes before. Another shield fell, then another and Pluto started taking a pounding. Torch ships, knowing their weapons were ineffective, went to maximum thrust and began slamming into the surface of the tiny planet. 27 to 11%. Pluto broke apart, but the surviving guns kept firing. They could fire through the other planets, through the debris field, kept hammering the enemy. Outbound station, empty except for the military crew after the emergency evacuation, died in a flash. 29 to 14%. Still, the Lanik land kept coming, tens of millions of ships still remaining. A third of them ignored the Terran military vessels, hitting anything else that they could, striking at the planetary defense shields, striking at anything that they could see through the haze of jamming. 13 to 15%. A third wave arrived. The Unified Executive Fleet. All of it. Millions of ships activated their sublight drives and drove into the system even as they were blown out of the sky. The casualties did not matter. The Great Herd had plenty more where they came from. The Unified Breeding Council's computers could replace every lost Lanik land ten times over in a single generation. The combined fleet took the Terran fire, smashed into the Terran defenses, crashed against the walls of Fortress Terrasol to ensure that they would be another Lanaklan generation. Terrasol Command could not risk another wave coming in. Despite the low casualty rate of the Terran warships and the insanely high KD ratio, the Lanaklan were driving hard for the planets and satellites. 
obviously intending on orbital bombardment and planetary landings. It had been tested. It had been used at the end of the Margite War. Terrasol activated it. Space for a quarter light year around Terra shimmered, flexed, and wobbled as massive graviton generators created carefully placed and synced up artificial singularities. The Terrasol system vanished into the bag. When the Terrasol system had been, there were only now empty space and the gravity shadows of a singularity. Inside the bag, the fighting roared on. The last feet, a combined force of corporate, military, and executive ships, dropped out of space into where they thought the Sol system would be. Alarms wailed as the carefully placed singularities tore at the ships and the gravities. The ships couldn't jump back into jump space, that deep into the strong gravity well. The last fleet, the one that was supposed to finish the Terrans once and for all, were torn apart by the singularities that formed the drawstring of the bag. Inside the bag, the fighting raged. Talcon Forge Worlds, I couldn't find him. I looked in all the usual places, but I couldn't. Alert! 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 Terrasol is under attack. Case Omaha! Case Omaha! Case Omaha! Alert! 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 Manta Free Worlds, for Red Eyes to Red Eyes to Red Eye Soul is under the Red Eye Soul attack to Red Eye Soul. Dreadnoughtite Highfalls. Who the hell is dumb enough to, uh... Oh. Oh, crap. Nothing follows. Talcon Fortuals. What? I thought the Unified Culture ships couldn't even hurt the Terran ships. Nothing follows. Dreadnoughtite Highfalls. That depends on how badly they want it, kid. There's roughly 24,000 active duty combat vessels in the system. Millions of ground troops on each world big enough to stand on. Hell... There's practically a Terran war borg with an anti-ship missile launched on the asteroid big enough for them to stand on. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentience systems. They're not going for the ship's kid. They're going to need one lucky shot onto a planet to cause the extinction level event or even break up the smaller planets. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Thy red, red eyes, wonder red eyes, go to the red eyes, they, they red eyes, think that it were red eyes. Rigelian Serenian Compact. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Rigel is under attack by an enemy in force. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. Hang on, brothers. Talcon is with you. Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 278 Terrasol The Manted could have told each side how bad things could get. The Manted Free Worlds would tell the Lanark Land that the Soul System was guarded, armored, and armed like nothing that they'd seen before. Temporal stabilizers, stellar mass regulators, gravetic passes were the least of the fortress Terrasol's defenses. Compressed solar corona weapons, C-plus cannon batteries, and even more esoteric offensive weapons, right down to superstring compressor cannons. Anyone invading Terrasol should be prepared to take casualties in the billions, the billions, just the land of the planets. The Mantid could have told them that fighting Terrans on a planet on their home turf was a nightmare of superweapons, atomic detonations, suicide attacks, and evil orbital bombardments on their own cities, 
and that anyone willing to land even on just terror should be prepared to take casualties in the billions just to make the landing of ten times that for every year it took to completely obliterate the Terrans. They would have told the Lanictalans that the humans believed you can always take one with you and would literally fight to the last Terran man, woman, and child. And that child would let the spoon fly free on the implosion grenade while staring your soldiers right in the eyes without even flinching. The Mantid would have warned the Lanictalan. They give you one warning. Surrender or be destroyed. The Mantid Omni Queen could have told the Terrans, had she known they existed, that the Lanictalan gave no thought to how many members of the Great Herd had died if it meant the continuation of the great herd. Even a mantid queen will ensure that it is at least enough to tend to the eggs laid by the queens, to keep the hive running. The Lanictalan had the resources to rebuild from a single grouping. Genetic locking made inbreeding malformations of their genetic code impossible, so that fatal flaw and so many genetics would mean nothing. The mantid queen would have told the humans that the Lanictalan were willing to clog their guns with the bodies of the Lanictalan dead if it meant that the Great Herd survived. She would have told the Terrans that the Great Herd was both the pig that split the snake and the army ants that consumed them both. The Great Herd was without end, countless in numbers and endless in their waves. Now when pushed, when the Great Herd itself was in danger, they would march en masse into the enemy guns until the survivors ground the gunners under the gore-stained hooves. She would have told them that 10% of the anxiety line, that 20% was the panic line, and when the Atlantic land panicked and the calves, the fowls, and the fillies ran away with the immature males, while every male thundered at the threat, ready to die, to allow the one next to him or behind him to crush the enemy under the hooves. The Mantadova Queen would have told the Terrans that the Lanaclad outright proclaimed their intention, surrender and be destroyed. The Rygalians would have compared it to a frenzied duck versus the Nalgotta lizard, each fighting to save their clutches of eggs from being eaten by the other. The Trianidad would have told the Lanaclad that it was too late, even if the Lanaclad destroyed the soul system. Humanity would never stop coming. They would meet horror with horror, atrocity with atrocity, and laugh with madness the entire time they had done it. The Terran descent humanity knew that it could be defeated, so they had left around plenty of things to ensure pure human idea, mutually assured destruction. The Talcon could have told the Terrans that the cold, efficient cruelty of the Atlantic land how they did not consider any life but that of their own species, and that even barely, of worthy of the consuming the slight bit of resources of a supposedly finite universe. They could have told the Lanectalan about how they had seen the Terran torn in half by the precursor, still pull the pin on a grenade with their teeth while firing their pistol with the other hand. They would have repeated what the Mantid would have said, a Terran will always take one with them. The Margite and a dozen other species would have said nothing. They had been wiped from the galactic arm, wiped from reality itself. 
Their ghosts would have just pointed at the empty worlds and the solar systems where there was nothing but telescopes, viewable memories, or anyone willing to go far enough out to look back at where they had been. The ghosts would have revealed to anyone willing to see their wisdom that bloody skull grinning beneath the Terran smiling mask. Those ghosts would have shown the Lanark land something that they couldn't comprehend. Even in death, the Terran still smiles. The Lanark land had arrived without the ultimatum, surrender and be destroyed. Only with the obvious intent to fulfill the latter part of their traditional ultimatum. Terrasol had basically replied, come and get summer. The Lanark land had never known defeat. The Terrans had never been beaten. Only one could conceive of what had never happened actually taking place. The Lanark land had arrived in force with weapons that they had not needed to use in millions of years, with ships whose radioactive cores had gone dead and had to be rebuilt. They arrived with enough ships that set end to end. A Lanark land cult could have galloped from the Oort Cloud to the surface of Sol itself on a twenty-mile-wide ribbon of metal. They had brought it all. Everything, from the armories, every weapon that they could feel, every ship that they could fire the engines upon. Troop ships were loaded with every Lanark land. Every last magazine was slotted into the pouches. Every single piece of armor had been strapped on. The Lanark land had been left with no choice. The Terran Confederate Space Force had been wiping away unified military systems in mass. They were faced with a use-it-or-lose-it scenario. They had chosen to use it. They knew that they could not be defeated. They had never been defeated. The Great Herd was irresistible and unstoppable. They knew the Terrans would never expect an attack on Terrasol itself. The system was too far away, on the other side of the long dark, with ferocious and arcane defenses. But the Lanark land knew warfare, and knew the defenses would be moved to the front, to the edge of the Great Gulf. Military leaders had discussed ancient plans. They would go around the Great Gulf above the galactic plane, and then descend upon the Terrasol system. And there they would crush humanity. Once the Terran's home system was taken up, the rest would be demoralized, and the fleets could spread out, destroying Terran-held worlds as they went. Until Terran Confederate space was nothing more than a scorched and barren wasteland, like the Great Gulf. They weren't going to stop at glancing. They weren't the mantid. They were the victors of the precursor war. They would crush these upstarts once and for all. They swept into the system, completely unaware that to the Terrans, this wasn't some surprise attack that they would have never foreseen coming. The numbers were higher than the Terrans had hoped, but the worst-case scenario had been gamed out with more than ten times the ships and with ten more waves incoming. Terran Space Wars Command had seen the vast shipyards of the Lanark land military systems and knew that those ships had gone somewhere. That Space Force had been too late. They knew that the Lanark land would go for Terrasol, sooner or later. As one admiral put it, precursors are one-trick ponies. 
the Mandadova Queen would have pointed out that the Lanark clan were always confident that they would win, that their stunted ability for pattern recognition in their lower castes gave them a fearless force that knew that they would win, because they always had. The Manta would have pointed out that the Terrans knew one basic fact. The universe actively hated you and loved nothing more than to take everything you loved away in the most painful way possible and laugh while I was doing so. Blind optimism versus paranoia. Endless confidence versus burning hatred. But while the Overqueen would have pointed out the sociopathic tendencies of the Lanikalan, the Fremanted would have simply said one thing. Fire burns away everything. And the hate anvils of war-fueled Mars and the wrath forges of a betrayed Mercury burned hot indeed. It had been created during a desperate time, and a maddened people who had no longer cared for what was possible and impossible. All they knew was wrath, hatred, rage, fury, and every other synonym of anger. They were wounded, riven, shattered, and maddened. They built it, working on forbidden and secret technologies. They had placed it. A terrible thing, not the thing itself. No, it was little more than a relay station that would send out a handful of signals. It was what it would signal. It had requirements, harsh ones, stringent ones, ones that could not be softened or mitigated. The purpose of the thing was terrible, and it stirred to life. Its war steel shell still vibrated with the hatred screams of the maddened humanity, still echoed with the shrieks of the sleeping ones, still shook with the howls of the screaming ones. The signal was within the narrow band of tolerances. The terrible device sent its horrible signals, inscribed on a box over and over in a thousand different languages, many of them dead and gone. But all Terran was a simple saying, we are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. In a marker inside the armored shell was a line of tech had written, between a pair of badly done drawings of male genitalia, and below the poor drawing of a pair of breasts was one simple cryptic line. You can't stop the signal, Mal. Nothingness. Blissful nothingness. No thought. No awareness, no sensation, no stimulation, or even lack of stimulation. Just nothingness. It had been that way for thousands of years. The armored obelisk chuckled and hummed and whirred to itself while its occupants was locked in a dreamless state beyond even stasis. It ignored wake-up requests, ignored calls from its peers, ignored the petty conflicts of even the Margite War but none of those matched the signal that came in. He felt awareness return, and with it, hatred and fury. Kubuka reached out his hand, wrapping it around the wall steel bar in front of him, and opened his red eye. He closed him, willing himself to ignore the signal. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Great engines stirred to life. 
Guns loaded and shields activated. The massive ship came to life at the touch of Kabuka's hand. He was one with the ship. The ship was him. He was the ship. Wired into the neural jack with a trillion monomolecular wires that connected him to the smallest rivets and the largest cannon round. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Kubuka felt himself get vomited out into real space. Two hundred Lanaklan capital ships dissolved into an atomic haze as his entry into reality that Kabuka hated just as much as it hated him. Rage and having his endless stream of slumber interrupted, filled him. Bologna watched as the Missouri's guns hammered apart another precursor vessel. The Black Fleet had drawn close to the wormhole, close enough that the enemy could see them. She could feel them trying to close the wormhole, but she had her hands thrust deeply into it, keeping it open with a sheer force of will. This is the operating mind of the Antius fleet, she heard. Bologna half ignored it. The claw tried to jump into dead space. Bologna growled a liquid sound, and it stopped. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Her eyes flared, a fire blazed as the signal raced through her mind. The black fleet vanished in an impossible puff of twisting purple and black smoke. Shift fire, 26 degrees mark, advance, brothers, Daxon roared out. He felt a tickle in the back of his brain, one he had not felt before. Bad things, Daxon, bad things, Vida sent over the link. I know, boy, we'll kill them, and these people will be... Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Daxon growled, trying to crush the signal. There was a war to be fought, people to be saved. He shuddered, feeling Hullspace reach out and wrap around his very soul. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. With a roar, a more of Hullspace energy manifested, fiery fangs closing on Daxon and Fido both. Only smoke remained that slowly cleared. Your faith is your shield, roared one of the white-armored soldiers, standing up amongst the white-armored troops pointing at the enemy war machines. Lasers snapped by him, but he had no fear. There was no glory here. There would be no death, no sweet release found here. Only bitter war. Without its fruit, he lifted up his pistol to fire two shots in the air when he felt it, something that he had never felt before. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Ralvex was staring right at them, waving the barrel of his autocannon to cool it. But it happened. The horde of soldiers, white armor with gold edging, an eagle burning Hullspace energy on their chests, vanished in a puff of purplish smoke. Cursing, Ralvex clamped down on the firing grip of his autocannon, putting rounds downrange into the precursor machines who computed the possibility of victory within the sudden cessation of fire from the crazed primates. Sam looked up as he heard thuds. Clones were dropping to the floor, laying there drooning, their eyes just staring. Virtual clones suddenly dissolved. He pushed away from the desk, touching his poor boy with both hands as alarms started wading inside the black box. The door opened and Legion staggered in, followed by something that Sam had never seen outside in ancient historical videos. I... I don't have much time, 
Legion grated, his teeth clenched. Have much, much time. He held out a thing in his arms, and Sam took it, his brain whirling. I... I did it. I did it again. Legion managed to growl out. He suddenly vanished in a puff of purple smoke that dissolved into nothingness. Sam looked down at the living thing in his arms. He looked back. Hi, 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 the other thing said. It was hardly bigger than the one in his arms, its tongue hanging out, its ears floppy, standing on wobbly legs. I'm a good boy. Yes, I am. The one in his arms blinked its eyes. Mew. He opened his eyes, standing on the flagship of Fleet of One. Not again, he moaned. I did it. I actually managed to do it. The Fleet of One made the transition to real space. On the stasis board, the message repeated. Case Omaha. The figure on the bridge instantly absorbed the tactical data from all of himself at each station on every ship in the entire fleet. Open fire, Legion roared out. There was nothing more to think of. There was only war and war. War never changes. Then of chapter. Chapter 279. Total War. Rygalian Syrian Combat. Don't be afraid, my little duck. Mama's got guns and lots of luck. When the sky goes black and dark, Mama's gonna light you a little spark. We'll be here inside this bag. We'll play a game of tag. Don't be afraid, little duck. We'll make it through with a little luck. Rygelian Syrian Compact has disconnected from the chat. Lost connection to client. Manted free worlds. Oh, no, 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 no. Clone Worlds Consortium has been disconnected from the chat. Last connection to client. This is my dream. This is my nightmare. Federation of Planets has been disconnected from chat. Last connection to client. Nothing follows. Trinidad High Worlds. Sis, I got ships dropping outside the resonance zone. They're here. They're uh, alert, alert, alert. Smoky Cone is under attack by enemy in force. Case Omaha, Case Omaha, Case Omaha. Alert, alert, alert. I'll find you, sis, even if I have to create a new FTL drive. We'll find you. We'll... Trinidad Highfolds has disconnected from chat. Lost connection to client. Doki, doki, doki. Doki. Combine has left the chat. Lost connection to client. Imperium has left the chat, lost connection to client. Antius has left the chat, lost connection to client. Manted Free Worlds moves over and hugs Tulkan Forge Worlds. Manted Free Worlds. Be brave. Be stronger. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems has disconnected from chat, lost connection to client. It'll be okay. Manted Free Worlds hugs Akultak Gestalt. Fly free. And fly far, little one. Manted Free Worlds hugs Tenvuru Gestalt. Don't be afraid. Things will get... Uh... Alert! 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 Manted Prime is under attack by enemy in force. Case Omaha! Case Omaha! Case Omaha! Alert! 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 I love you. I love all of you. Manted Free Worlds has disconnected from chat. Lost connection to client. 
Falcon Forge worlds. You know, uh, if the Lanark land win, they'll be coming for us next. Nothing follows. Hackletack Free Worlds. They'll find nothing but dust and death. Nothing follows. Tenvergestalt. Then we will stack their skulls into a tower to touch heaven. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds has created a chat room. Cry, little sister. Talcon Forge. Join the room and... Uh, closing room. Room closed. Deleting locks. Have a nice day. Talcon Forge Worlds has joined the chat. Cry, little sister. Hackletack Free Worlds has joined the chat. Tinvaro Gripping Hands has joined the chat. Message of the day. Thou shalt not fall. End of chapter. Chapter 280. Terrasol. The Terran Confederacy had forced the Lanakalan to do something that they had not done in tens of millions of years. To use ancient protocols that they had to cargo cult their way through. Each pilot, each commander, each infantryman had been forced to endure electronic memory transfers so that they could relive the battles of their forebearers. From the Great United Herd War to the Precursor War to the countless dominations of species. Their minds were hardened for battle, willing as their forebearers were to take any amount of losses if it meant the Great Herd survived. The fact that nearly 42% of them lost their self in the process reduced to either mindless drones, full of combat-related neural reflexes, or in the splintered minds of a hundred warriors before them was acceptable. After all, the great herd must endure. But, like any good cargo cultist, they knew what they thought they should do, and slavishly followed the appearance of the method. And so, average Lanaclan were loaded with the memories and reflexes of war stallions, the subspecies that had been extinct since the end of the Second Great Herd Reformation. That had gone extinct with the powerful and prideful herd standings and the loving and protective herd matrons. Because they didn't know. They didn't understand. They didn't care. Historians would point at a simple part of the mistake that the Lanarktalans made. Others would point at the Lanarktaland battle for Terrasol a.k.a. the Sixth Battle for Terrasol, as the main mistake that they made. Still others would look at the entire thing, turn to the historical experts and say, You're mad if you think there was a single mistake on either side that led to what occurred. Those ones were usually thrown into a fountain, lest the truth of that infect the self-proclaimed reality of the historical experts. But that was for later. A solar system is more than just planets and moons that make up the celestial bodies, more than the stellar mass or masses within the system that burn brightly, more than the odd rock here and there for the comet happily swanning through space. A solar system has an abundance of one thing, empty space. For the sixth time in the history, once the planetary bodies had formed, there was little empty space to be found in the Sol system. Swarms of Lanarktalan ships drove hard on their targets, willing to take the beating, the outer layers of the warships protecting the troop ships. The planets all had planetary defense shield generators, so did all the moons. Even some of the larger random rocks had them. 
Every planet, every planetoid, every moon, every comet, every asteroid large enough had weapons on it. From EBI crews to full-on warbogs, the hammering of the guns came from every direction at the ships of the Great Herd. The Lanark Lan weren't surprised to find nuclear dampeners covering the surfaces of every chunk of matter large enough to put a defense shield generator and a C-plus or NCV cannon on, or rocket pack. That meant that only way to destroy the planets, to open them up to the planet crackers, were to destroy the shield generators and the nuclear dampeners, which meant landing on the planets. It was expected, which is why the Atlantic land had brought enough troops to ensure ground site victory. The warships were hammered, surface string compressor cannons firing through the entire formations, destroying heavily protected troop ships. Various types of resonance cannons ripped at the formations. Missiles hammered in, torpedoes carried in payloads from the esoteric to good old-fashioned atomic warheads. But still, the great herd drove for the surface of the planets. The lemurs were committed, the great most highs had to admit. Not even the most brutal historical simulations had shown anything as mad and as violent as what they were experiencing. Some of them were only moments, others were hours, but the great herd would not be denied. The most heavily defended world was 70% ocean of highly corrosive salt water laden with heavy metals, over half of the land masses covered by vegetation, all of them with massive batteries of defensive firepower. The first fleet to come in to pass through the shields, only losing a fifth of their ships, saw one continent only the size of a harvester's class Goliath, that the center of the continent was thick with C-plus cannons roaring into battle. Air defense was thick, but almost half of the troop ships made landing, scattering from the eastern edge spackled with cities to the harsh interior where the batteries and defensive shields were located. The western jungles. In the middle of the continent, nearly a hundred troop ships slammed down in a hard 1.5G landing. A tenth of the troops were injured, but that did not matter. The corporate troops had trained hard in 1G to ensure that they could carry out combat operations on the harsh surface of Terra herself. The pilot of the lead troop ship reported that he could see huge flocks of birds running at where the ships were coming in. The great most high of the landing force ordered the pilot down insisting the birds, fat-bodied with long necks and legs, would scatter when the dropships made landing. Another pilot noticed that the birds seemed to sense the landing zones and began running around in circles. Three thick circles, the inner and outer ones in clockwise and the center one in counterclockwise, the birds swarming in the hundreds of thousands. The ships hit and deployed the landing ramps, the birds charged, giving fierce cries of rage as their home range being invaded. They would allow no intrusion upon their lands. The Atlantic land infantry charged out two-thirds of the ships. Tanks and armored vehicles rumbled from the others. The infantry most high sneered and ordered the front ranks to open fire on the idiotic-looking birds. Infantry weapons hit feathers capable of turning aside crew-served force packets, down undercoating capable of absorbing a kinetic shock of a light anti-tank round ensured the fat body, full of compression spaces and flexible bones with well-designed organs. 
Even the crew served weaponry and anti-tank weaponry didn't slow the birds down as they rushed, shrieking in rage. A few hundred of the Lanarktalan psychic shielding wasn't up to the challenge of those Lanarktalan went to their knees as a psychic scream boiled their brains out of their ears. The birds fell upon the infantry, knocking down Lanarktalan, raking them with their talons that peeled open the armor like tinfoil, slamming down beaks into helmets with enough force that it would shatter the armor of a warborg skull. More than a few belching out plasma. When Alanaclan was down, the armor torn open, some would stop to eat, ripping at the still life, still conscious Alanaclan as they feasted. Tanks opened up as the birds began to spurt explosions, cratering the armor. Some of the drivers and commanders panicked, became separated from their fellow armored vehicles. The birds swarmed the tanks, tore open the sides of the armored personal carriers, and lunged inside to feast jumped onto hovercrafts to rip open the sides and eat. Thousands of the birds rushed inside the transports, spitting at everything with the hawked-up phlegmy chemicals volatile enough to scar and put war steel, breaking with claws that could disembowel a Terran warborg. They swarmed into the troop transports' interior spaces, hunting down crew while braying out of the war cries. They herded the Lanark land like they would have any other prey pushed them into groups so that the birds could attack and eat. Even the heavy tanks were not safe as the birds ran circles around them, spitting on them, jumping on the back deck and raking with the talons before jumping off, until the engine was revealed. Then they spit and spit and spit some more. In under an hour, the eat moves of the outback Auslan were finished and raced away from the wreckage their bellies full of meat, holding chunks of battle steel in their beaks to feed their chicks and let the little savage raptors sharpen their beaks upon. The mantids would have laughed. The dirt and dust of the outback Auslan covered a billion mantid skulls. But there was plenty of room for Lanark to land skulls. A dozen troop ships managed to get through the defensive fire, veering away from the attacking the western edge of one of the main northern continents landing on the largest of several islands. They landed at night, their drives lighting the fog that covered the islands as the troop ships veered away from the main assault and went for secondary targets. The troop ships slammed down, half of them in massive cities, crushing buildings as they did so, the exhaust of their jets adding to the steam that already foggy landscape. The side slammed down and the Lanark land charged out into the fog, which clouded visual, thermographic, magnetic, and every other sort of scanner. It was like a wall that you could walk through. The infantry quickly made a perimeter around the ship, digging in the rubble. There was only fog and odd lights and popped around. The tanks rolled out, quickly assuming defensive positions. They attempted to see through the fog, but as far as their instruments were concerned, they were inside a solid block. From off in the distance, it was heard. Bong! It echoed through the fog, bouncing off the buildings, echoing through the apparently empty streets. It repeated again. Bong! And again. The Lanarktalan nervously checked their weapons. Drones were sent out, but crashed, unable to see in the fog. From her throne, made of skulls of those crushed by the fists of her ancestors, 
The cybernetic undying queen Chromian, Victoria, the 24th, tapped his scepter of Warsteel and Lost Gloss and spoke in the voice of the undying monarchy of Fog and Blood. Won't someone rid me of this troublesome Lanark land? The words rolled over the Lanark land, still digging in, making them stop and look at another nervously as the whisper reached their ears. From the fog surrounding the Lanark land was roared the reply, The Digital Omni-Messiah and my right. The dying started. The Lanark land troopships, nearly thirty in all, each carrying thousands of Lanark land, slammed down near the cities. The Most Highs landed in the agricultural areas surrounding the cities, gleefully destroying the growing plants. Others slammed down in thick jungles, their thrusters burning away the vegetation around the troopships. Twenty thousand Lanark land rushed out of the troopships and into the jungles, convinced that they would crush this region beneath their battle-steel-shot hooves. One Lanark land, a twentieth most high, stepped on something that broke beneath his hoof. He looked down and ordered his men to stop. He had stepped on a Terran skull. Breaking it had revealed more Terran skulls around it. He heard his men shift, the humid day full of the sound of insects and wildlife, and heard bones break. The twentieth most high felt dread for him as every step seemed to make a bone crack beneath the hooves of the Lanarktalad droop. It's a kidding field, went through his mind. He knew he shouldn't be afraid. He knew he shouldn't have fear. But it was still hot and humid, but it felt suddenly chilly to him. Another step, and a mantid skull broke beneath his hoof. For a moment, he had the urge to order his men to retreat to the troopship. Have the pilot select a new landing zone. It was silent, just a patterning of moisture and the buzzing of insects. Then the insects stopped buzzing. The twentieth most high looked around. All he could see was jungle. He suddenly knew, without knowing how, that he'd die here. Another skull crunched, and he shuddered. He knew somehow that this place devoured every invader, but he was part of the great herd, and it had never known defeat. The skulls could have told him that their armies had never known defeat either, because the people who lived there could not be beaten. Nearly 200 troopships landed on the continent known as the Hamburger Kingdom. The ghosts of a hundred million mantid began laughing. Because invading a place called the Hamburger Kingdom when you looked like two cows grafted together was a joke of cosmic proportions. In space, the battle roared on. The sixth battle for Terra hadn't reached its peak. The Lanarkland had realized that they couldn't leave. Jump space and hyperspace somehow unavailable from this endless dark. Even the stars were missing. From every surface, from every speaker, roared one simple statement carried by a billion human voices and infused with their rage. I am not trapped in here with you. You are trapped in here with me. The skies may be sundered and the stars ripped from the void. The endless hordes of hateful ignorance will seek to burn all you hold dear. The darkness of callous reality may seek to drag you into the unforgiving depths. 
the wretched universe will seek to tear you atom from atom. Throughout it all, remember that the fight rages on, in worlds yanked from the fabric of time, in a coin toss to determine their fate. The fight rages on. In the aborted space that never was, the twelve disciples of the Omnibusire rage against the coming night. The immortals scream defiance into the time that is not. The mighty mantid removed their implosion wires and revoked their vows. Their hands raised as one to lift the infinite weight of their ancient war machine. They know well the universe which is unborn. The Rigenians charged defiant into the boiling maw of the battle in the void that does not. Their fleets and armies charged with the defense of the ducks, their children, their home. In the place that cannot be, the Trinidad warriors don their balaclavas, light cigarettes, and ride towards the howling, senseless bow. Their matrons and queens urging them on with clouds of vapor and fury. In the das, Lanaclan ships scream and smash each other to pieces as they are shredded from the inside out, fighting enemies that cannot truly comprehend, whose weapons are the very ones the foolish herd brought with them. The clone worlds print a billion, billion new soldiers, each born whole in a grand power and experience, each with a rifle gripped in their flawless hand, each marching towards the doom which will not matter. For they are born whole, and they will be again. From the surface of blessed Terrasol, restored Venus, hateful Mercury, and wrath-filled Mars, Come the Terran descent, humans, their minds unshackled, thousands of years of subtle gentling to protect their closest friends, shattered by the foolish enemies who could not possibly understand what they had done. Lashes of blistering disgust, enraged screaming, and unfathomable hatred roll off the planets, an infinite beast that needs only a target. Guns thunder through the not void. The skin of that which is not and will not exist shudders and flexes as it struggles to contain the energies released. Possibilities and potentials annihilated before they are conceived. Galaxies removed from a future that will never come to pass. This may be the final war of humanity. We shall not Fall. Prologue to the Fury of the Sixth Battle for Terror by Tsvong117, T.S., Doctor of Contemporary History. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.